Welcome to Collisions YYC, Beyond the Echo. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. In this special series of episodes, I tackle the question of how does the world see Calgary and what can we learn from it? This is a journey of curiosity, of taking the time to gain the insights of the people that are outside of our day-to-day conversations. I'm seeking to learn where there are gaps, misunderstandings, and most importantly, opportunities for us to grow. During this intense period of economic transformation, I'm not willing to leave any stone unturned that may give us an advantage for the road ahead. Join me as I chat with thought leaders, innovators, and the movers and shakers of the world to learn their perceptions of our amazing city from beyond the echo. Hey, well, I'm having a good old fashioned chat with Mr. Michael Litt. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I am very well. Great to be here. And you're, uh, you know, this is audio, but video, you're, you're, you're calling in from your garage. So it seems like you're having a good day. It's a, it's a Thursday, it's a Thursday morning. I see some toys in the background, which we've been chatting about, but, uh, where, uh, you're, you're a Waterloo, like this is, this is a Calgary based podcast. This is going to be under one of our, our monikers of beyond the echo where we reach out outside of our ecosystem to get new perspectives, kind of like go out, leave the village and bring back. So that's kind of the Love theme it. of the show. So thank you very much for coming on and being willing to invest the time. Yeah, man, absolutely. I, uh, I'm a big fan and, uh, and I'm excited to share some of our experiences and hear from you as well. Well, I appreciate that. So let's, hey, let's get the audience. Let's bring them inside the tent. Co-founder and CEO at, at Vidyard. So let's start with the basics. What, what is a vid, what's a Vidyard, Michael? <laughs> yeah, great question. So Vidyard is a video platform for business, long and short of it. Um, I can give you the founding story because I think it's actually contextual to this conversation. So my co-founder and I attended the University of Waterloo. Uh, we both studied systems design engineering there. The cool thing about that program is you do four months of work, four months of school. And this is kind of the bit of the secret sauce of, of Waterloo because all the, all the grads from engineering and computer science, which obviously feeds the technology ecosystem, get to see what professional life is like. And a lot of these grads end up going to Silicon Valley, working at Facebook, Google, et cetera. And so they're very talented engineers and computer science people. But a lot of them also realize, fuck, I don't want to go and work at a big company upon graduation because it, it sucks. And I've learned enough and seen enough to know that I can go and innovate somewhere in an area of inefficiency inside of this business. I realized I also told you I wasn't going to swear and I already swore. So we're off to a good start. <laughs> I, um, I, I was going to let that one go by. Like, that's on, you're the guest. Yeah, you set the good. stage. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, anyways, what, you, I think you got three minutes in, man. That was about I three minutes. I'm, I'm not going to tell your mom. Is it hour minute fifty eight is what we're at here? So oh man! Even, yeah, oh, uh, well, you didn't even get three minutes. <laughs> we were talking about dirt bikes. It got me wild up. Anyways, um, so, uh, so I was working in Silicon Valley at a company called Cypress Semiconductor, and Devin, my really good friend, we met in the very first year in an ice cream eating contest. Um, long story short, um, that's an obvious place to meet up, meet a lifetime business partner. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, quick story there. So there was a scavenger hunt. There was an ice cream eating contest. We both got assigned to it. We didn't know each other from a hole in the wall. Showed up. Devin was like, yo, I'm really good at eating ice cream. I used to eat ice cream at the cottage all the time. We'd do competitions. And the competition was build a really big ice cream sundae. And then one person um, had to eat it. The other person had to feed it to them. Again, we didn't know each other. And so he had to put his arms behind his back. I had to put my arms through his armpits and be his arms and feed him. And so they gave everybody this, this, a spoon and we had this gigantic bowl of ice cream and um, they were like, okay, on the count of three, we're going to go. And I was looking around and everybody was, you know, waiting to eat their ice cream. And again, nobody knew each other. So it was very awkward, very intimate experience, kind of, kind of hard to imagine in a COVID world. And uh, they said, three, two, one, go. And I threw away the spoon and just grabbed with my two hands, all of the ice cream and just shoved it into his face. 
And, uh, and we won the competition and that like set the <laughs> stage for our relationship from this point moving forward. So, so many, so many meta- out of box thinking, so many metaphors and stories you can remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, exactly. that is a good set to stage. Yeah. So I'm, you know, four <laughs> years on from this, this uh, ice cream eating competition, I'm living in Silicon Valley. I drove out there and uh, Devin had never been to California and I needed somebody to drive back with me because I gave myself basically a two and a half day window to get from San Francisco to, to Waterloo. That's yeah, a 4,800 kilometer drive. Um, you know, across the country. Now, I'd done it a couple times before, uh, but Devin was going to be a great co-pilot. I had this old Volkswagen Jetta. It was a manual. It was diesel. I loved that car. And he had never driven a manual before. So he flew out, taught him how to drive it in the parking lot of a Whole Foods. The car broke. Uh, we had to put it up on axle stands, replace the starter motor in it. We ended up not being able to replace the starter motor. So we took off basically having to bump start this car for the most part across I, the country. I see why this, the manual transmission uh, became relevant very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and he didn't really <laughs> know how to drive it, right? So, you know, highway miles were fine. And we, we finally settled in the rhythm. And, you know, we'd been spending some time here that week. We set off on the drive and, like, you run out of stuff to talk about like, pretty quickly. And this is before, like, Spotify and streaming music and stuff. And so it was a lot of long silent moments and we started kind of riffing on on business ideas and one of the things we saw so now i'm answering your question in all of our internships were that uh companies wanted to use video to explain to their audiences uh what they were doing whether that was from a marketing context or a a sales and support context and we had contracted companies to make those videos but we're never really ever blown away by the quality and you know, frankly saw that these, these projects were very expensive. I remember doing a project when I was at BlackBerry. It was an $80,000 video production project. They produced three videos and they were kind of, kind of, kind of garbage. So like, you know, we can probably build a business to make these videos for companies and help them communicate technical aspects of the product. And that's exactly what we did. We called it Redwoods Media. We set ourselves a $50,000 revenue target in the first four months. If we got to that target, we called it Project Christmas because our deadline was literally Christmas of 2010. Um, we would go and, and, and pursue this full time. Christmas Eve, Devin closed a deal with a company called Adkimi in Silicon Valley for like $12,000, got us across the line. So we're like, hey, now we're going to go and do this, and um, which, is, which is exciting. And so we're, we're full steam ahead. We're in our last year of undergrad. The one thing that was common with every single uh, deal we did is that when we completed the video, the customer wanted to publish the video to their website. And they always asked us how to do that. So the option, best option at the time was YouTube. YouTube had downsides, right? YouTube is a branded experience. YouTube wants to suck you into YouTube.com where you just watch content and they serve you ads, right? So you might watch, you know, a video on BlackBerry.com's homepage, but then you see a recommended video, which is a you know, a, a BlackBerry playbook versus an iPad comparison video, which was common at the time. And you, you went and watched that video, you weren't going to buy a BlackBerry playbook, right? So there was downsides. And then, you know, two hours past, you're watching videos of dogs riding skateboards. The brands we worked with wanted to control the viewer experience. So we built this very simple hosting platform that could be branded to our customer's website. Then the customer said, okay, we want to know who's watching these videos because we got to justify ROI. So can you tell us on a viewer by viewer basis who it is if we you know, give you some information about a form complete or you put a form on the video itself 
So we added that technology. And what we found was there was all of a sudden this really cool technology business that was a SaaS offering that we could charge people a monthly subscription for access to it on top of the video production. So we had a services business doing video production and a software business as well. We then applied the Y Combinator and they were like, hey, this is really cool. You guys are building YouTube for business. You've got customers. You know this is a real problem. We're going to fund you. So we moved back to Silicon Valley and started building out what became what, Vidyard. What year? Are you, you're like, this is 2011-ish? 20, yeah, summer 2011 is when we went back to YC. So we're back in California building the software. We realized the content production business was a huge distraction. Let's go focus on the software. Started building that. And what we did was we integrated it with CRM. We integrated it with marketing automation systems. And so if the marketing automation system knew who the viewer was based on a cookie, we could grab that information and report that to our customer. We started building interactive uh, aspects into the product. We built a live streaming functionality for live events, which is obviously very popular now. And then eventually we built a series of applications for you know Chrome, for Edge, for desktop, for all mobile platforms, which is basically an easy video creation tool where you can do a quick webcam recording or a screen capture, send it to a customer, send it to someone you work with, um, and then get a notification when they view it. And it, it's this really interesting way of communicating, especially now that's asynchronous like text is, but with video. And obviously that has exploded through COVID-19. So we are a video business. We're a video platform. We have a bunch of technology to help companies use video better. Uh, we're a freemium offering, so you can use our hosted solution or the video recording solutions for free. And then we've got a big kind of motion that we can build bigger accounts through having multiple users inside of that account by branding the experience to the to the uh, end user, which is still a common thing. And then, of course, all the data we collect on who's watching your video gets reported into CRM, into marketing automation, so companies can do a bunch of stuff with that. So, yeah, that's that's what we do. So from a startup perspective, literally, it sounds like there was kind of one key pivot at the beginning, getting away from the production to the technology platform. And from there, it feels like you guys have kind of just been reiterating and adding more value and dimension. But has there been a big pivot since then? Or is that what you've locked into? And then it's just obviously growing and understanding more ways to add value, but around that same core offering. Yeah, I think, you know, from a technology perspective, absolutely. We used the, so we built a series of APIs. One was like our hosting infrastructure, dashboard infrastructure, analytics API, et cetera. We've been building functionality and integrations on top of that ever since. And so in a way, it's just been what do customers want? What are the trends we see in the world? And how do we you know, intersect those with our technology? The biggest pivot, if you will, came in our business model over the past two years. We used to sell top down to an organization. So we'd go try to build a relationship with a CMO, director of demand generation, you know, director of digital. Now what we do is we issue everything for free. We get people to use the product and then we go through the selling motion. And that in of itself is a very complex business model change because we, we've had sales reps. And when you start giving away stuff for free, the sales reps get upset about it. I mean, you've course, got to align. That's not, how I'm, that's not how I'm being compensated. You're messing my model. <laughs> yes, exactly. And an enterprise technology solution is way more complicated and harder to use. And that's okay for those buyers than a free solution because a free solution has to deliver value immediately or people aren't going to use it. Uh, and so we've had to completely rethink the way the product looks, feels, acts, behaves, the speed of it, the reliability of it, et cetera, to serve a bunch of customers. And our, our customer growth rate has been explosive. Like um, 
two years ago, we were approaching a thousand customers. Now we're approaching 10,000 customers, just to give you perspective on what that oh, growth rate looks eight, like. Eight, the first, first eight years versus the last two years. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. And that's what we always kind of reflect on the team with. Um, we still have that enterprise motion, but now it's bolstered by this free motion. And in our last quarter, 60% of all new revenue we closed started with a free user in an account. And a year ago, the, uh, I, that was our Q1, Q1 a year ago, it was zero. So big overhaul of the business model. But, you know, this is the way companies are buying technology today, right? Time is the biggest risk to execution. So a CMO isn't saying, hey, I want to use this software. The person responsible for putting the video on the website will just go find whatever is free and best available and has the best reviews on G2 Crowd and TrustRadius and whatever they use and will grab it and use it. And if they like it, they might ask for the budget. So the bottom up sales motion is now real. And we knew that if we weren't going to be able to retrofit ourselves into it, a competitor was going to come along that could do that. So we've never stopped innovating everything from technology to business model. And, you know, we've got a bunch of ideas where we're going from here and it's exciting. That's so interesting. You see, unpack it. You think about, you know, who are those individuals putting up that video now? They're a generation that doesn't want to wait. They don't want to get approval. They know what they need. They're savvy. They're going to go find it. They're going to read the reviews. They're going to talk to their buddy uh, and it, it's going to happen. And they're yep. going to throw it on their credit card and ask forgiveness later. That's just how, that's yeah. how it's going to go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, there's this, there's this quote that's been floating around for years now. And I think it's more relevant than ever. It's that, you know, 60 to 70% of the purchasing decision is made before someone even talks to a sales rep. Right. Yes, I've, I've seen so that graph over the last bunch of years. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're in market with content, you know, uh, reviews, analyst briefings, um, whatever you can get out there that is searchable. And then the free product is just another piece of that. And that free product is almost the final piece of that, right? Because people are going to see all that before they use your free product. We were expecting them to see all that and then raise their hand and say, I would like to go through a multi-week sales process. They don't have time for that. They just need to go and execute. So let's just give them the version of the software they need. You know, you got to be generous. You got to give like 90% of the value away for free, but then understand what's the 10% of the value that they're willing to pay for because now they're so committed to the 90%. And Slack, you know, is the one that I think people are most comfortable with. Slack invaded our organization like, like a cancer almost. It, it showed up in dev. People were using it. And then all of a sudden they started inviting other groups to use it. Mostly it was unproductive off topic chat stuff. Then all of a sudden everybody was using it, including, including me, but we could only, we only had a 10,000 message per day limit and no integration capability. And so I needed to go and find something. It was hidden in this 10,000 message limit. You know, we got to go pay $36,000 a year for this thing that nobody wanted. Nobody asked for it. Just, it just invaded our company like a virus kind of like a COVID-19 analogy there. Um, and so now we're coming here. <laughs> I'm laughing because the exact same thing happened at Clear Motive. Like we had the same thing and all of a sudden I'm like, okay, if you guys want to use it, sure. And I went on and it's just gifts and memes. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm not feeling this. Then all of a sudden my management team is like, well, okay, we need to upgrade. It, it's like, there's no option anymore. Like we'd have a rebellion on our hands. It's like, yeah. wow, you sneaky, you sneaky bastards. Well done. <laughs> yes. Great business model. Um, so, hey, let's get to the nuts and bolts of what we can learn. Like from a Calgary perspective, is it a very different cycle than where you guys at from Waterloo? And maybe back to, I love the story because the relevance, and certainly I was reading some stuff online, you guys came home. You went to Y yeah. Combinator. God, why wouldn't you stay in the Valley? This is where it's happening. This is where the investors are. This is where the multi-stage exit mentors are. But yet you guys came back to, to Waterloo and it sounded like that was from your perspective, a bit of even a turning point for that ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's, this is a big topic. And, um, 
I know in the future you're going to be talking to somebody named Ian Klugman, who's kind of like the godfather of this whole motion. So you'll hear me reference him and what Communitech has done um, at a few points here. But we got to the end of YC. And again, we had come from Waterloo. We'd come from the University of Waterloo. We knew what the ecosystem was, right? We were engineers capable of building stuff. We now find ourselves in Silicon Valley. We lived in Silicon Valley for periods of time uh, through undergrad, et cetera. So we had a really good feel for that ecosystem. And, you know, we were trying to figure out where do we ultimately want to be? Now, at the time, San Francisco was already having a bit of an engineering talent crisis. And the cost of engineering talent was starting to bubble up and the availability was bubbling up and the retention of those engineers was starting to decrease. And that was like an ongoing topic through Y Combinator, right? Mark Zuckerberg came in and talked about that challenge and, and Mark Benioff from Salesforce. And so we're kind of like, yeah, you know, that is going to be a thing because we have a very technical challenge on our hands. We have to build a video serving infrastructure that is as capable and as reliable as the incumbent, which is YouTube, um, you know, with like a handful of people and very limited resources, we're going to need a really strong, talented engineering team. So we started looking at, okay, San Francisco is X. What does New York look like? What does Boulder look like? What does Boston look like? What does Austin look like? All the kind of up and coming areas. And we almost in the back of our mind, what Waterloo was. And we knew that we had friends who'd graduated that were very capable that would join the company, but didn't want to come and live in the States. And so we got thinking, you know what? We think we can go and do this in Waterloo. And if we need to, our go to market function can be in the Valley. And me as the CEO, I'm going to spend a week, a month in Silicon Valley. And I'm going to make it so that investors and customers and whatever don't even realize I don't live in Silicon Valley. Like, well, just Perfect. I'm just going to sacrifice years of my life on planes and I'm going to be in the Valley. And we went and told Paul Graham that, who's the founder of Y Combinator, who was kind of like our advising partner at the time, that we were going back to Waterloo. And he said, it is going to be like climbing Mount Everest with a 10-pound weight on your back. And Paul Graham is a very kind of metaphorical individual. If you've ever read his essays, you'll get a feel for it. What he means there is, you know, at first, you don't really notice an extra 10 pounds, right? You've got a lot of gear. 10 pounds is a small percentage of that. But as you get higher and higher and as you grow and as you scale that mountain and the oxygen gets thinner, you know, and there's less people there to help you, it starts to get heavier. And by the time you hit the summit, if you ever make it there, you're going to wish you didn't have that 10 pound weight. And I'm glad you walked that one through because in my mind, I'm like, oh, 10 pounds? That doesn't sound like that. But yeah, Kate, good. Point yeah, taken. I've never summited. I've never summited Everest, but I've talked to people who have, and and with that analogy, and they're like, "Yeah, that that was a really hard hitting, one of those like very poetic metaphorical moments in life." And and I don't even think I realized the extent of what he meant at the time. Uh, but we, you know, we decided against all odds. Waterloo is where our families are. My dad was terminally ill at the time. Um, and I just couldn't imagine building a company in San Francisco and, and, you know, doing that reverse commute and not being able to be there to support my family. Um, the engineering talent was there, you know, the, it was a community that had built Blackberry, which was, you know, fundamental to the mobile internet and, you know, had an $80 billion market cap. And so truly showed that it had the scale and the ability to produce a big company we, you know, we knew the Dean of engineering. We knew how to hire from the program. We knew the culture. 
it just made sense to us. And so against all odds, we went back and all of our investors, we raised $1.65 million. Um, none of them asked where we'd be and I didn't tell them where we were going to be. And so everybody oh, so just the, your, your, your raise, your raise was all done out of the Valley. Mm. Yeah. 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 So at the end of, at the end of YC, um, I drove around San Francisco, kind of Menlo Park, Sand Hill Road, just constantly. We did about 100 meetings and um, raised $1.65 million. And so the end of YC, we didn't tell anybody we were going, you know, SV Angel, Andreessen Horowitz, yep. Soft Tech. They, none of them knew. You know, they never asked. And Devin and I loaded I, up. I like, the don't, I like the don't ask, don't tell kind of policy you got going as you kind of smirk, as you, as you say it. For those of us that know, I can say I've got the value of video right now. Yes, exactly. Video is the next best thing to being there in person. Yeah. As, uh, yeah. Ah, well done. <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, you know, Devin and I got back in his car was also a Volkswagen Jetta, but a much more modern one. And, um, you know, we with loaded, a starter. Yeah, with a starter motor. We loaded it up. And we drove back to Waterloo and this time around, you know, the business we had started just a year prior on that trip had now fundamentally changed into a SaaS company. We had $1.65 million US in our bank account and the two of us were doing that drive again. And it was like a what the fuck moment. Like, <laughs> I, feel, yeah, I can got, feel the weight of the, I can feel the weight of that. Yeah. We are like way out ahead of our skis. We're going back to Waterloo um, nobody really knows about this ecosystem. It's kind of fledgling and it's going through this transformation. BlackBerry is dying. Basically it's on its, it's not dying, but it's on a downward trend. Uh, it's changing. And there's a lot of questions as to the future of what's going to be, what's, what's going to exist in Waterloo. Like, are there going to be jobs? Is it going to be gutted? Like this was what's going to happen to housing. Like these are the questions. And we're going back, right? And, you know, it kind of felt like the march to Mordor, right? We had the ring and we were going to, you know, throw it in the flame and hopefully, you know, we were going to save the world. All would be right in the world, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so we got back and we started hiring and building the team and function. And at the time, there was this Velocity program that was just spinning out of uh, the University of Waterloo. It was an incubator program that was based on on residence, had just rotated out into a program that would support grads and give them dedicated office space in this new thing called the Communitech Hub. And the hub was in this building called the Tannery, which used to be the largest tannery in the British Empire and was converted into like funky brick and beam real estate in a really kind of tough area of Kitchener-Waterloo. Downtown Kitchener, you know, was kind of the peak of manufacturing at some point. It had Kaufman uh, boots and Bauer skates and Uniroyal tire and, you know, this big button factory and a bunch of really kind of influential Canadian businesses. They'd all left as manufacturing kind of moved east and downtown Kitchener became the drug and prostitution capital of Canada, apparently for a while there. Was that, I heard it, I've been heard it referred to during that time frame as a pretty sketchy place. You wouldn't want to go at night, but I never heard it as the drug and prostitution capital of Canada. I guess, I guess somewhere has to be number one. Unfortunately, it was you guys for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where the, the tannery was like smack dab in the middle of this. Some, that certainly some puts a, that puts a context to it. When you look at it now and there's always that we romanticize and like, oh, it's so great and you guys have got it figured out. But that was 10 years ago or not, like that yeah. was not, that's oh. recent history. Dude, and, and the people who bought that building you know, I think they bought the tannery for like a couple hundred grand and oh, that wow. building, literally, like, yeah. Yeah. And that building and then developed it, that building sold to a REIT uh, a couple years ago 
called Allied for like $32 million. Like it's insane. And now, I mean, there's, there's like probably, I think it's three or 400 square thousand square feet. Like it's a big building, but like, Oh my God, like the vision of those people was just admirable. And, and, and then Communitech, the, the two tenants in this building were Communitech and Google and Google's engineering headquarters for Canada has always been in Waterloo. It moved to downtown Kitchener and slowly the whole ecosystem around it started to change. And, and, and we frankly took a big gamble on it against all odds because we believed in the power of Waterloo to, to, to sustain um, this vision of developing a really robust technology platform. We believed in the capability of people because we were those people. And so we moved into this velocity garage thing inside of the Communitech tannery, which was basically free real estate. And that's where we started building the company. And we, we built, we kind of got moved around the building and the building kind of started to fill up with more and more companies and more people were coming through the region. Our investors, eventually we talked about where we were, they came and visited and, and, you know, got to meet other companies. And, you know, at first, it felt like Waterloo was so, so, so naive compared to Silicon Valley. And there was like this big, high, hairy, audacious goal. And, you know, there was the Silicon Valley of the North thing that was constantly bandied about. And I was always like, no, we're not Silicon Valley in the North. We're our own thing. This is a completely different thing. Like, this is Waterloo. Like, you know, it doesn't need to be called Silicon Valley. Just call it Waterloo and keep, let's build incredible value and let's bring amazing people to this ecosystem. So, Ian Klugman asked me to join the board and we started thinking through what is the programming that will help Vidyard succeed and in doing so help other companies come to this region and succeed. And so why you guys, were the, you guys, were the, you guys were the prototype essentially for like, how do we, yeah. do, Oh, that's interesting. I appreciate the, cause yeah, I want to get into like what incentives or like where the government, what role the municipality played versus, you know, uh, public private sector enterprise, like just curious of all the parameters, but that's what you guys built through uh community tech. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. 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 And Ian, Ian again is, is kind of the, the key stimulant of all this. Um, so, and it was all kind of based on how do we build more successful companies. Now, why Combinator, you know, is an, is an engine, right? At the time there was 50 companies in our batch. They were doing about a hundred, hundred startups a year. And they had already recognized that Waterloo grads built good technology. And so they were recruiting or looking at, um, with a highly, a higher likelihood of probability of funding companies and founders that came from MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, and the university of Waterloo. And so, you know, uh, there was a, a company called Pebble, which, you know, was the uh, Pebble smartwatch, was the highest grossing Kickstarter of all time. That was led by Eric Mijikowski. He was my roommate in undergrad. He went to the Valley and stayed, but he built a really interesting business. And eventually it sold to Fitbit and, and, and it didn't maybe do as, as well as we would have hoped it did, um, but was a phenomenal story and innovation in its own right. And then Vidyard came along. And then there was a company called Bufferbox, which was my good friend from high school, Mike McCauley. He was going to go out west to do a program called Grow Labs. And I said, dude, you have to apply to Y Combinator. Go through the process, the application. We almost got in a fist fight over it. He went, applied to Y Combinator, went to the Valley, um, brought Mike Moritz back to Waterloo on a private jet. Mike Moritz, the, the founder of Sequoia Capital, because what he was doing was so exciting uh, for Mike Moritz. And then I inevitably sold the business to Google um, instead of raising from Sequoia and moved back to the Valley. And so all of a sudden, Waterloo 
started to have this cachet of, of these founders doing cool things. And because we were back, there was other founders applying and seeing Vidyard's success and funding in, in the press we were getting. And, and we were getting our fair share of press because we were a YC company in Canada operating um, and started thinking, hey, you know what? If they did it, we can do it too. And so now today, there's 50 YC companies operating in the Kitchener-Waterloo region. Whereas, you know, eight, nine years ago, uh, there was only one. And that was us. And, and so it's just kind of started to build this momentum. Um, so in retrospect, it's amazing. But at times, it felt like Waterloo just wasn't moving fast enough. And, and we can talk about that. So I'll pause there because I'm sure there's a load of questions. Um, but that's kind of yeah, how we've where, where to start, where to stop. It's interesting to hang the paradigm in so much of I've had a few guests on and like anything, it's so easy to look at where someone's where, where Waterloo's arrived at and go, oh, that just looks great. But I, for me, it's really revealing to understand how recent history that actually is from that transition from RIM being what everybody knew and the big story, Canadian story, to what you're talking about, which is actually truly an ecosystem that wasn't there 10 years ago, just literally was not. Yeah, Absolutely. So curious from when you guys moved back, obviously there was, you were incentivized. So you, you quote unquote had free space in what was this highly, like you were in the right environment, but you guys didn't have to pay to be there. Was there any other incentives? I guess I'm just curious of the role that like what the municipal or provincial government played. Someone's, it's always a debate I get into of like, where's government's role in all this? Is it to incentivize the right behavior? Is it to get their hands in or is it to actually get their hands off? So curious for you guys in those early stages, it's obviously Communitech and and the people that were involved, but beyond that, like what else was conspiring to make you guys successful or not maybe? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So, so one of the, so Communitech is a broadly now privately funded organization, but back then it was majority public, right? So Communitech had an, had a, a mandate to reduce its dependency on government dollars, but for all intrinsic purposes, Communitech is a regional innovation center. It just so happens to be treated a little differently because of its broader impact. Um, and because it was founded as the Atlas Group by the CEO of RIM, Jimbo Silly, uh, the CEO of OpenText at the time, uh, CEO of Unitron, CEO of MKS, who said, you know, we got to get together and build an ecosystem of support for our companies on the basis that we need to hire more people and we need to recruit more people to this region. And so it started very basic and grew and grew and grew and had this big mandate and always had a board of people that were building businesses in the community, which is why Ian added me to the board, I think, so early on because I had a new perspective. And this was kind of the next generation of the way companies were being built. And so he wanted that to be a part of the, the puzzle. Through that funding, Communitech builds a bunch of programs, right? They, they, the government comes in and consults with startups and tries to figure out, you know, what can we do better? Um, they have a really strong EIR program. So our first EIR was a gentleman named Brett Shellhammer. Brett was the head of product at a company called Eloqua. And Eloqua eventually sold to Oracle. It was a marketing automation solution in Toronto. And through that relationship, we met the CTO and built an integration and that integration was on the marketing automation side that gave us a channel to new customers. And, and if Communitech hadn't had that individual that was funded by the government to be an advisor to a bunch of different startups, we wouldn't have had that opportunity. Um, so the government, I think, was seeing Communitech as a way of placing dollars that could then be effectively allocated. Because I think the government's not in a position to pick winners and losers. It's not in a position 
to fund companies and choose who gets that funding and who doesn't. It just isn't the expertise they have. However, there are people who do have that expertise picking these companies, AKA venture investors, customers, et cetera. And the government should depend on some of those results to figure out how to funnel money accordingly, if, if necessary, and if that's what they want to do. At the end of the day, like my position on government dollars are, you know, companies should be able to get to success without them, right? There's a lot of private capital out there in the market. And if you're dependent on public programs like shred, for instance, you're going to spend more time focused on applying to and getting money in those programs than you are actually building technology and serving customers. And in the end of the day, only one of those things matters. Only one of those things is going to make you a successful business. And I've seen shred prop. I call them zombie companies, you know, get propped up by these government programs when it would be best if they just shut down and celebrated their failure and moved into other more productive companies and learned and then went back to entrepreneurship or back to starting another business at some point in the future. So there's actually some downsides of government programming. I think what community tech did is funnel it more effectively into businesses like ours. And so, you know, we didn't get dollars in the bank account from the government, but we got support and resources via Communitex programming because the government gave it to them to then allocate with a bunch of experts. And, and the, the, the experts they brought on, you know, they've had the CEO of, of Intel, of Apple Canada, talking about Brett Shellman, Shellhammer, the CPO of, um, of uh, Eloqua. There was the CEO of Unitron, which is a, a really amazing high-end hearing aid company that was in EIR for a while. Um, a really good friend of mine now, his name is Mark McCardle. Um, he's the one who taught me how to drive a track car, which is sitting behind me. For those of you who can't see, um, he was, uh, <laughs> I'll, take a screen, I'll take a screen grab just to use later for sure. Yeah. So he was the general manager of, of, uh, of, um, a, uh, McAfee office locally that hired a big engineering team. Um, there's all sorts of, I can move out of the way for you. There's all sorts of cool, cool stuff in the community. So that's, that's where the government dollars, I think. <laughs> played a very interesting role for okay. us. Um, that said, was it the most efficient use of money? I don't think so. I think there could have been ways of doing it better. But, you know, at the time, I think we were throwing stuff around and seeing what worked. And, mm-hmm. you know, I probably spent more time than I maybe should have in conversations about that. But I think what it's done, ideally, is set the foundation for the next generation of companies. No, I really appreciate what you said about the role that they play to kind of set the stage, but not to prop up bad ideas like when they should die so the learning can happen and you can move on. And that discipline to know what's a distraction and what's a core comp or what's a core should be a core focus. Ugh, on the, that's, that's, that's easy to say to armchair as you and I are talking, but when you're in the heart of it, it's, it's those silver moments of being defined by what you say no to, right? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Saying, yeah, saying, yeah. saying yes is fun and easy as an entrepreneur. I want to say yes to everything, but I've, I've learned that that's not what truly defines me. Yeah. Now, on a municipal level, there was also there's also been some some grants and, and stuff that has gone into the community. And then mm-hmm. another thing that the municipality did is to then, so eventually a company like Vidyard grows out of the tannery, right? There's just no more space. We got 12 people. We can't give you free space. Go get your own office. There's been programs that have incentivized companies like ours to go get a lease in a space in downtown Kitchener, which again was a sketchy area that was changing, you know, all the public services and stuff that existed in downtown Kitchener, which made it a place for people with, you know, mental health situations, et cetera, to go 
and get meals and get services and stuff. That's all there. What was now happening was um, there was a, a newer class, a young professional that was working, living and thriving. And so more diversity coming to the community, which is a good thing, right? In, in, in my mind. And so the municipality was incentivizing startups to go and get space in these offices um, to help subsidize some of their leaseholds because there's a bunch of empty buildings that used to be, you know, these manufacturing hubs that were great brick and beam space for startups, you know, that didn't necessarily care about marketing and wanted urban density and wanted almost that San Francisco feel in downtown Kitchener, right? One of the, you know, hipster coffee spot and all that stuff, because that's the thing. That, that, there, there's a vision that goes with all that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I think the municipality did a good job of starting to adapt. Again, did they move fast enough? Absolutely not. Was I frustrated at times with the stuff they were doing and where they're putting money? Absolutely. Um, but they gave enough incentive to companies like us to stay and continue to grow and thrive um, and made it easy for us to make a decision to stay there versus, say, go to Toronto or, or even go up to Waterloo in, in that case. Right. Um, even though we say we're from Waterloo, our offices are in Kitchener. So there was definitely. I know, I'm, I'm picking, I'm, I, as you're talking, I'm picking up on the nuances of like, yeah, we like to lump it together from the outside, but it actually, it is different. I'm hearing, just listen to your words around that. Yeah. So, so just to talk about that, cause I think it's probably interesting in Waterloo, there are none of those public services, right? Waterloo, you know, I have referred to, and this might anger some people, but you know, it's kind of like a, you know, rich people's paradise to some degree, right? It, it has parallels to Palo Alto and Stanford, you know, there's, there's, you don't see anybody on the street asking for money. You cross the border into downtown Kitchener, which is much more urban and has taller buildings and, you know, feels like more of a city and that is there. And so in my mind, it was always going to be more attractive to someone coming from a bigger city like a San Francisco or a Toronto because it felt more like that. Um, but very, you know, very different. And, and Waterloo does not want that. And there's been amalgamation votes to try to distribute those services accordingly. And Waterloo has said no, and Kitchener has said yes. And this is a longstanding thing, even though it's all one region and you can walk across the border. It just, it just feels very different. And Communitech mm-hmm. was in Waterloo in this research park north of the university, and they chose to move into, into Communitech and build this kind of dense urban environment and be at the center of that. And that decision, I think, was highly critical um, to the dynamics that have now started to play out because the real estate was cheaper for startups. And, and you know, everybody thought that the previous generation thought that parking was really important for people. And then I came <laughs> yes. along and it was like, I want to walk to work. I want to ride my bike to work. I don't want to drive. I love driving. I love cars. But like, that's I don't want to commute. I don't want to have a car there. I want to walk in. I want to go have, you know, lunch at a restaurant. I want these you know, more vibrant aspects of my life that help stimulate my creativity to build a cool business. And that's interesting, just some of those parallels, because obviously Calgary, we're going through, I think we've, depending on who you talk to, we've got a 40 to 50% vacancy rate in our downtown kind of triple A, what was primarily oil and gas space. And our city, I don't know if you ever spent any time here, it's all connected by a plus 15 system. So in the wintertime, the downtown core is all connected. So there was an article recent this week, some tech startups here in town, they're at that, you know, getting growing 50, 60 person level, and they're now moving into those spaces. I don't know where the incentives are to kind of create that. Like we definitely have, like we've got, you know, we've got a I think uh, the head of economic development told me, she said, we could accommodate a population of around 4 million people based on the amount of uh, commercial real estate we have available. Yeah. <laughs> We're only 1.2, 1.3. So hearing you say something like that, which sounds so obvious, that's exactly our dynamic right now. Like that is, yeah. that is part of our, that's one of our problems. And Calgary is a much bigger city, right? 
um, than I think Kitchener Waterloo is collectively. Um, and so there's so much opportunity to grow. And it sounds like if you're seeing those 50, 60 person startups that are now moving in that space, that's exactly what started to happen in downtown Kitchener. Um, I just don't know, is there a centralized resource that, that exists to be that hub? Like one of the, one of the functions that Communitech plays is when, like I remember Fred Wilson funded Kick. Kick is a Waterloo based company. Ted Livingston's a buddy of mine. He actually lives, just lives up the way from me here, up the street, up the highway. 10 kilometers. We're kind of out in the country here. We, we yeah. live in the country. I, I grew up in the country. Yeah, he's over there. It's about 10 kilometers away. Yeah, 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 it's my yeah. closest neighbor. I wouldn't walk, but, you know, ride a dirt bike. Anyways, he, um, <laughs> uh, he, Fred Wilson funded his company from Union Square Ventures. Amazing, amazing VC. And Fred came and, you know, did a board meeting and, and hosted a lunch with a bunch of startups. And, like, the hub was where he came and where he sat. And then everything, Communitech built a day of programming around him. And so everybody came to this one location. So for him, he doesn't have to go from meeting, 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 meeting. He's in one spot. Everybody comes around him. And it literally was a hub. Um, Justin Trudeau comes to town and does a consultation with companies. It all happens in this one place. And everybody knows that's the place, right? There's no question about where it's going to happen. It's going to be at the hub. And that's something that Communitech did a really good job of. I don't know if that exists in Calgary, but I think that was a key part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's under construction right now. It's a platform. Calgary is building a facility downtown with the whole philosophy that innovation happens within three, like at most three stories from the ground. So they're building a huge infrastructure downtown with a multi-purpose, you know, parking that can be converted to space as required right across from our new library, which is a world-class facility that's been built here in Calgary the last couple of years. So we're on our way. Like, listen to you talk. It's giving me, I'm often, I'm bullish on Calgary, but it gives me hope as I'm starting to see some things like, hey, we're, we're starting to do that a lot better. And I've always felt in Calgary, and part of why I did the show was there's all these pockets of things going on, but there never was that Galvin, like that, that lightning rod of whether it's a, lead, a group that's in the lead or a place that is known as this is where it happens. And I think one of the side effects of being a bigger city, you've got a little bit more fragmentation where I grew up in a small town and that's the vibe I'm getting from, yes. from you in terms of what, what really contributed. Like everybody literally knew everybody because you were bouncing into each other at the same coffee shop. Yeah. And you know what? That's like, that's like Mountain View. And Palo Alto, right? Yes. Those were like separate yeah. ecosystems that eventually merged as they got big. Um, you know, San Francisco is not actually that big, even, right? So, so these these smaller ecosystems and smaller towns actually became big. And 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 um, you also see that in Boulder, right? Boulder, Colorado, Austin, Texas. These are slightly bigger places, but have those smaller community vibes. Now, Toronto, I would say, is a really interesting case study. And there's you know a number of people that I'm sure you're talking to about Toronto because Toronto, for the longest time, trailed behind Waterloo. And, you know, Toronto was like, how do we become like Waterloo? And what I always saw in Toronto was these pockets that were just completely disconnected, you know, the different villages and areas, but all of a sudden Toronto has hit scale and Toronto has had this galvanizing moment where there's a lot of amazing innovation happening there. And it's kind of starting to get centralized around a number of, of groups and ecosystems um, I don't know if the Toronto version of Communitech, which you know could be considered Mars, might not be, had quite the same galvanizing effect. Probably because it's a larger business. That's beyond my pay grade and a highly controversial topic, given <laughs> on that extent. But you know, Waterloo did have that you know meat and bones of of being small. And honestly, when you came to the to the hub, all of the startups that you probably wanted to see from an innovation perspective. We're within like a three kilometer rate walking radius of the hub, right? And so everybody could come there or you could go to any of their offices. 
And so uh, we, when Alexis Ohanian came, he's a, he's a friend, and, and he did that um, Small Empires bit on us. You know, they just walked everywhere that they needed to film, which is amazing. It's just, it's just such a, a cool thing for them to be able to experience and have that really kind of like OG feel to it that still exists to this day. Um, now things are just getting more dense. And then what happened is all of a sudden, a bunch of residential developers were like, wow, there's a whole bunch of tech companies working in Kitchener. This is a demographic we want to sell condos to. Boom, condo towers go up. And if you walk in downtown Kitchener, I was there yesterday, you know, there's like five um, cranes in the air building these huge towers that are going to increase the people density, which is going to change the dynamic once again. And um, I think it's all part of broader ecosystem development. So you can't build, like if we had built all those condos before the tech companies existed, would people come and live there? I don't know, right? There's these, you know, it, it kind of has to happen organically and it can happen fast. But what's the, what's the key thing that will bring people to an area and it's jobs. And if you have jobs, people will come. Opportunities. Yeah. And, and good paying opportunities, then they'll find a new home. They'll go and live there. And, uh, and then it becomes a, a more vibrant and more diverse community. So thinking about like, for the sake of it, eight years is forever, but it's also overnight. If you're thinking about the economic transformation we're going through, and as as you know, we chat a little bit offline, like we're coming off years, decades of success from one industry. So I had someone say the other day, you know, we're, we're kind of, I feel like, oh, we're five years in. He's like, no, we're only about two or three because we just held our breath for the first two, hoping resource resources were just going to come back online, which they haven't. You know, when I think of eight years in Waterloo from what you described as a real transitional, like <laughs> drugs and prostitution capital of Canada, is there anything that was kind of a key, like if you were going to go back, go, man, if we just would have turned the dial up on that one specific thing, or was it, you know, I'm ignorant to say, but there's clearly a series of events, but is there any knobs that you would have adjusted, like putting us in our shoes now, what, where would you have added a little bit more fuel on the fire if you could go back and do a redo that things that might accelerate things? Yeah, I think one of the things that is still lacking in Canada in general and we're trying to solve for in Waterloo, and I mentioned this free call, is the availability of venture and cap, basically capital, right? Um, every single one of these companies that I've talked about being in Waterloo, the vast majority of them have raised money from U.S. institutions, U.S. venture firms, um, you know, family offices, growth equity, private equity, like that's where all the capital is. And they're also looking for more efficient ways and places to distribute capital. And Canada's great, right? Canada is like the United States in a lot of ways. It's just further north, a bit colder and cheaper in a lot of ways because yes. you know, it's, the, it's familiar. It's familiar. Yeah, because of foreign exchange and there's no other country like that. And so, you know, I'm happy to survive off of US-based capital, but at some point we need it to be driven by Canadian capital. Because then when companies are successful, like Shopify, the vast majority of that wealth stays in the country. And then when that wealth stays in the country, it feeds the next generation of innovation. Whereas, you know, Shopify, you know, from what I know, I, I, I haven't validated this, but I know the guys over there really well. You know, they have some of the same investors we have. The vast majority of the wealth that came from their IPO, which is that big inflection point that we all want, ultimately goes stateside. So I look at, I look at Alberta, I look at Calgary. And like, there is so much money there, right? But that money does not necessarily understand how to invest in venture. And so I think what will be key, so what we've done is we've now built some sophistication. So, you know, Vidyard's approaching 300 people, fairly large business, growing really well, you know, now profitable, 
um, you know, considering IPO, considering a whole bunch of paths. Uh, D2L has, has been really big. There's been companies that have bought and sold. My buddy's company that sold to Google was called Bufferbox. We've now started a venture fund because we know we've raised, Midyard has raised 75 million bucks. Um, we've now helped a bunch of founders raise approaching a billion dollars collectively. Um, we're now participating in that as investors, bringing everything we've learned from YC and Silicon Valley into that funding model, right? We brought uh, convertible debt and safes and now post money safes into a place where everything was a complicated price ground, right? So we've made funding more easy and more tactical and based on the founder and the founder market fit, not on, you know, unachievable traction and metrics um, that were kind of the more traditional way of doing venture financing in Canada. So, so more aggressive venture will drive more productive companies that grow faster which will then accelerate all of this curve. And so venture dollars are the big thing. Now, again, I've always said the best companies will always go find the money, right? And, and, and there's, there's, there's investors that are looking at Canada and trying to find these companies, but there's a difference between having to go to San Francisco to ask for money versus going up the street or going to the hub or going to see the local VC. And Canada needs a much higher density of those types of businesses. And again, the capital is there. It just doesn't have, doesn't have the sophistication to invest in tech. And that's going to have to change. So yeah, let's let's stuff because that I hear that time and time again. And you know, even when I've talked to companies that have gotten funding, they've diluted themselves so much. Like the funding model, and I like that you brought that up. Set, didn't set them up for future growth. Like their first round actually crippled them for the future. And I've heard that from Calgary's companies in Calgary that even if you do get the money, you're literally giving up your firstborn or your ability to scale or grow or shift down the road. Yeah. How do we, again? How do we move that needle? Because you guys are doing it. I've talked to companies in Calgary and there's a lot that are raising south of the border as well, but we've got the money here. I guess, what's that gap? Is it a, is it a generational change that needs to happen yeah. on who's stewarding that money? I, I think, is it like, what, what? Nah. Yeah, I think, I think what will happen is you'll have a business that is successful, has an exit, and then people from that business, founders, executives, whatever, decide that their next chapter is venture financing, right? And because they know it, because they have a proven track record, they go convince all the oil, oil money that, you know, venture in Calgary is a thing and they start deploying that cash. That's exactly what we've done. Um, that said, the vast majority of our capital for our first three funds, we've invested in 85 companies. Uh, we currently have 50 million under management across our third fund plus our opportunity fund. Um, we've deployed obviously a lot more than that through the, through the fund life cycle. Um, the vast majority of that still comes from the States, right? Because there are US-based firms that are looking for deal flow in Canada. They see us as a tool to get that. But Every single fund we do gets more Canadian and we get more of the Canadian dollars invested. Also, Waterloo has a bit of an advantage because a lot of people have made money in tech and so they get it. Yes, you're, you're farther down that, that, that generational cycle, right? Yeah. Of success and exit and then reinvest. Yeah, so I think, I think that'll, that'll happen. Um, you know, or, or you might have a venture fund, US-based venture fund that's like, you know what, Calgary is doing some amazing stuff. We got to put somebody there. Right. But what all those funds are doing now is they're putting people in Toronto. So got to bridge a gap to Bay Street and make sure that everybody on Bay Street that's in venture for these bigger U.S. or international firms knows about the cool shit going on in Calgary and is there and is getting invited there and is getting on a plane and walking the halls. Because Zoom is great, uh, but seeing and feeling what's going on in Calgary will be so important to driving that that uh, that level of attention. 
Yeah. Hey, I love the technology and yes, I, I love video, but I also like experiential too. Sometimes you gotta, you, you can't learn dirt biking by just watching videos. Sooner or later, you got to go out and, and, and dump it in the corner. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> to work, to work, the, work the bike analogy back in. So, Hey, maybe similar to your journey, you're down in the Valley, Y Combinator, you raise some funding, then all of a sudden go, oh, hey, by the way, we're moving back, uh, you know, thinking about that journey. So you've got this fund that you're working with. What would you tell, like, if you're looking towards a Calgary, I guess, what are some of the earmarks you're looking for? Like, yeah, the company itself, like, I guess, are you going to look at a company in Calgary and go, hey, we're happy to invest, but you've got to come to Kitchener. <laughs> you've got to move here. Or I guess, or is there things in our ecosystem that you would look at from the outside and say, oh, you know what? I like, I like this company. I like what you're doing. And actually, you know what? I believe this ecosystem is moving in the right direction because of these indicators. What would be kind of what would be on that dashboard? Yeah. I mean, we our our thesis is really built around kind of the water, like Waterloo um, and the Waterloo influence, University of Waterloo influence. Um, and obviously that touches all aspects of Canada to some degree. So we don't really care where companies are. We've got, we've got portfolio companies that are in Silicon Valley, right? They have that composition, great businesses. They just decided to go there and stay there. That, that still happens. That's totally fine. So company in Calgary, we don't care. I think the big question for, for, for Calgary will come at the later stage, right? When we raised our series B from Bessemer venture partners, really well-known firm, they've done like 12 to 15 cloud IPOs. I remember the partner meeting we did over zoom. And one of the partners said, so tell me about Waterloo and can Waterloo actually build a billion dollar business? Like, is it big enough? Does it have the capacity? Does it have the history? And I was like, well, have you heard of Blackberry? And he's like, good point. Right. I don't know what that is. And what <laughs> I, I, I used to be able to pull that ace out whenever you need it. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and you know, Blackberry at the time was, you know, everybody in Silicon Valley had an iPhone and you know, remember Blackberry and it was, you know, but still $80 billion market cap. You can't fuck with that. So I think, Calgary, you know, the question will be at a later stage, is the ecosystem robust enough from a talent and experience perspective to go and build these big companies? I don't know that personally. I don't know that region that well. But the reality is now, post-COVID, you know, you can have an executive team in Silicon Valley. And, and for, the, for a period of time, you know, my entire leadership team was U.S.-based. I was flying into Waterloo every, you know, you know two weeks to go and execute because there just wasn't that level of experience that fit our SaaS model. We've now built that and we have that inside of our inside of our company, but that'll be the big question, I think. Well, arguably you said the world has changed even that parameter of like it's amazing how literally forty eight hours convinced us that there's just about every role can now be done on remotely. You know, that I did I do appreciate the amazing accelerator that COVID to look always at for the silver lining, it took where we were headed and just accelerated it exponentially. Like literally overnight. It it broke problems we've been trying to solve for years and all of a sudden they just went away. It was actually kind of amazing. Yeah, and it, I mean it like accelerated the adoption of, of e commerce by ten years, accelerated the adoption of video communications technology, but probably the same thing. Like there's this k-shaped recovery and everything on the upside of the k is is generally tech it's high it's highly efficient high gross margins you know high um low infrastructure costs um great retention these are amazing business models that now investors are like holy cow and you see that in snowflakes ipo going basically 300x in the first day it's completely bizarre but stuff like hospitality transportation etc continues to be flat and all the money there is moving into these tech IPOs. And then it's just recycling, right? The next IPO is going to get a bunch more money and a bunch more money. And so this whole sector, this whole industry, I think has gone from zero to hero overnight. And there's got to be, you know, you know, traditional wealth, traditional Canadian commodity wealth in, in, in your region that's seeing this and being like, fuck, you know, we got to get in at the ground level. We got to fund some of these companies. Now, what's good? Let's put together some vehicles. 
but they can't go in and say, I want 80% of your company for a million bucks at the seed stage, right? They have to be willing yes. to, 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 to think about how big these companies can be and think about what, what that investment is going to mean when this business is worth a billion dollars, right? Not when it's worth 10 million or 15 or $20 million and try to try to build a model for that, right? You're investing on a, on convertible debt. You're investing on a safe. It's not a price round. It's not a complex thing. You can put the whole, you know, the, the whole fundraising document on two pages. You pick a cap, you pick a discount, you go and you build a syndicate and you get as many people with diverse backgrounds in that deal as possible so that those founders have as much expertise and as much invested interest as they can. These seed deals often have 10 to 15 different investors in them to syndicate to help them succeed. The series A ends up being, you know, one fund that leads it growth fund, BC, same, same type of thing. But the seed round is this dynamic thing. And without that happening, it's hard to even get to the A's and B's and C's. So you kind of have to almost solve for that problem. And here you talk about this, the diversity, you know, and I've also heard it said like, well, money's not that hard to get. It's everything else that I need to go. That smart money, which is experience, connections, the know-how of getting me there. And I think if I've been making my money off a traditional, you know, hard asset resource play for years and Western Canada has tons of wealth that's been built off a very quote unquote traditional model. I can bring money to the table, but I don't have all those other things. So, uh, you know, you how is that company setting itself up by going, yeah, we know you have the funds, but don't worry, we have this network that's going to fill in all the other blanks that maybe you don't have because you're not a a tech a multi-tech exit entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely, man. 100%. Uh, so it, it's interesting to hear what you, I really appreciate the perspective of a uh, guilty, a little bit of thinking that Waterloo Kitchener has been Waterloo and Kitchener for maybe a little longer than I realized. <laughs> I think that makes you guys a little bit more human and approachable than it's really been the last 10 years. We're just a bunch of crazy Canadians trying to figure it out, man. We're all in the same boat. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, Michael, thanks for, first of all, thanks for taking the time because I can only imagine how busy things are and companies don't run themselves <laughs> and uh, you've got uh, probably a million variables going on in your world. So great appreciation for your time, your insights and, you know, a view from outside the, uh, we got to get outside our own little ecosystem. Sometimes we, uh, I joke, like after a lot of conversations, I'm like, we're talking to each other too much, guys. We need to get out there in the world and see maybe how things look from the outside. And man, just look to somebody who's done it already and like beg, borrow and steal and copy as much as you can for success. Yep. More is never enough, right? As soon as we get focused on yeah, our own little right. bubble, we think we're doing well. You got to look outside and, and Waterloo is so nascent. It's so early. There's so much more space to go. You know, we're just talking about where we are today. The whole conversation is where we go from here. I'm looking forward to having that one with you in the future. We'll save that for round two. Uh, what's the best way? So Vidyard, if people are interested in your product, is there any, is there any, what's the best way to reach out to you if someone wants to get connected? Uh, they're, they're super inspired and can't wait for more. Yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn's great. I'm on there. Uh, feel free to send me a DM. Um, hopefully we'll get to it. But yeah, happy to, happy to chat, happy to help. Michael, I really, really appreciate your time. And obviously go check out Communitech for anybody who's looking for an example of somebody who's doing it really, really well in the Canadian ecosystem. So thanks for your, thanks for your time, my friend. I really enjoyed our chat. Yes, thank you, Tyler. Appreciate it.